On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you've forgiven anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in his book, this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Well, I don't know whether you've um, picked up on at all um, on the the big weekend that we're in the midst of uh, celebrating uh, the 400th anniversary of the uh, death of William Shakespeare. Uh, we were in London yesterday, uh, it was my daughter's birthday, or it's coming up to my daughter's birthday, and we were in to do something else entirely, and found ourselves on the South Bank walking along, and there were these 10-minute sort of vignettes from Shakespeare uh, uh, being performed on film at all sort of different points down the South Bank. All sorts of different things going on. President Obama was in the Globe Theatre um, hearing uh, a, a great speech one of Shakespeare's plays. Um, and there are various articles around asking, well, why is it still so popular? Why are the works of somebody uh, writing more than 400 years ago still popular today? And in fact, by all the statistics, getting more popular as the years go by. Well, one of the ways in which you could explain that popularity is simply to say that the themes that Shakespeare picks up on, and in particular, the questions he deals with, are ones that are still relevant today and every day. And I want to suggest that one of the things that you can do is to say that these two questions might be explained like this. One of the crucial questions that we ask is simply, are we alone? Are we alone? Is there more to life than meets the eye? Is there more to life than simply what you can see, touch, taste and feel? And the other question is linked to it, though we'll have to come back and explain why. The other question is simply this. What do we do with the mess and messiness of human life and experience. These two questions, on the one hand, are we alone? Now, down through the years, that's been answered in all sorts of different ways. For some people, sometimes it's thought of in terms of the supernatural, an interest in spirits and ghosts or Ouija boards. For others, it's astrology and trying to tell the future. For others, uh, it's different forms of religion and religious practice. This question is... They're more to life than meets the eye. Uh, We were thinking last time, what does life look like if we came from nowhere and we are going to nowhere? If this life is all there is between our birth and our death, 
Is this a sort of hermetically sealed, locked room, if you like? Are we on our own? And that does link into the other great question of all human literature, of all human philosophies and ways of thinking and worldviews. This question of, well, what do we do with the fact that this life that we do live between birth and death just isn't perfect, is messy? Imagine this. Even if you managed to live a life that involved a safe birth, a healthy body, beautiful family, lovely childhood, great schooling, lots of money, living in a peaceful part of the world, never getting any great diseases, having great friends. It's life in West London, isn't it, really? But clearly, you know, just, you know, that that life that you could imagine, the very best of each part of life that you could, you and I still know that life wouldn't be perfect. We'd experience the gradual decay of our bodies. Some of us feel it more than others. We'd experience friendships that don't quite work out. We'd experience the brokenheartedness of teenage first loves. We'd experience the job that isn't exactly what we want to spend our time doing. And actually, however much money you have, there's always this little bit more. What do we do with the messiness, the imperfection, and sometimes, let's face it, the downright disaster of human experience, of human life? And are we on our own? in this locked room, to deal with it on our own. And I want to suggest that actually this passage, actually this pair of passages, it's two stories linked, obviously, one week apart, the Sunday that we now call Easter Sunday, and seven days later, I want to suggest that what these stories tell us is that the the answer, the key that unlocks both of those big questions, the biggest questions any of us ever face, is to be found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That in, in Jesus rising from the dead, we have the definitive answer to the question, am I on my own? Is this life all there is? And we have the definitive answer to what am I to do with the mess of human existence, with the brokenness of human hearts, with the fracturing of human relationships, with the disintegration of human society. What am I to do with all of that? Listen to these first few sentences in the reading that I read for us. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. There are Jesus' friends absolutely terrified. They're terrified of the Jews and the Romans, actually. They're terrified of the authorities in general. They're terrified because their friend Jesus, who they thought was going to be the one to rescue them turns out has been the one seemingly to be on the wrong end of the authority's power. He's been arrested, he's been tried on trumped-up charges, he's been convicted of something that he'd never done, and then he's been brutally tortured, humiliated, and killed. They are terrified. They have locked themselves into this space that they sort of hope is hermetically sealed, that will keep them safe. And then there is Jesus with them. Now, I love the understated way that John puts it. Jesus came and stood among them. They're in a locked room. Jesus came and stood among them. It rings true, actually, with all the resurrection appearances that we've looked at so far. Each week, what we've said is, if you were making this up, you wouldn't make this up. You know, if you were making the, the story up of Jesus coming out of the tomb alive, what you'd make up is, bang! You know, he'd 
burst out of the tomb with splinters of stone going everywhere. You'd have wonderful sort of CGI graphic type, you know, special effects with, with flames and, and trumpets and angels. And it would be powerful and he'd be ten foot tall and burning white. And actually, he's so ordinary that Mary thinks he's the gardener. Or when he's walking on the road, as we were thinking last week, with Cleopas and we think his wife, on the road to Emmaus. You'd have this sort of fanfare, uh, trumpet, you'd have a blazing light, they'd fall on their faces to worship him, he'd be, you know, ten foot tall and all of that, and actually, it turns out that he's just walking alongside them, and they think he's just a fellow traveller, they don't notice that it's Jesus. And here they are in a locked room. Wonderful metaphor for the life that we think we're living, which is just from birth to death. Are we on our own? And there's Jesus, just standing among them. I wonder how long it took them to tweak. You know, when you're just sort of standing, having a conversation, there's a bunch of you. There probably weren't just the, the 11 of them. There may well have been more of them there. There were about 100, as far as we can tell, of the closest followers of Jesus. We don't know how many of them were in that room. Can you imagine, like, just, just having coffee at the back before a service. Fairly subdued conversation. They're scared. They're, they're afraid. They're dis- distressed and depressed. They're, they're confused by the stories from the, 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 the tomb that morning that, that some of the women and Peter and John had brought. And, and they're just talking. And then, do you think maybe a, a gradual hush fell? And there's Jesus. There is a reality that is beyond the reality that you and I see, touch, taste, and feel simply. There is a life beyond this life. It's what we all hope for. There's not a human being alive that hopes that this is the end, that this is all there is. There's not a human being that's ever lived that hopes that we come from nowhere and go to nowhere. That very thing that we long for, Jesus in his resurrection, comes and brings the reality of that life beyond life right into the midst of their life. He doesn't just go, one day you'll know it. He says, I'm here. I'm standing right in the midst of you, this life beyond life. Real. I mean, the wonderful thing about Jesus' resurrection appearances is that they aren't just ghostly. There's nothing here of sort of hallucination or vision. You know, they didn't go into a deep slumber and visualise Jesus, the, the risen one. They, they, they don't have individual little hallucinations of Jesus. There, there isn't this ghostly presence that flows, floats past in the white nighty. You know, this is Jesus eating with them. This is Jesus allowing his body to be touched and held. This is Jesus saying, go on, there's the nail marks, here's the spear, Mark, here I am. And yet, even though he's flesh and blood, real, clearly he's living a life that is beyond this life. He seems to be able to appear and disappear at will. A moment before, he's been with Cleopas and his wife on the road to Emmaus. He sits down with them. He breaks bread. So he really picks up bread. There's still the crumbs falling from the bread as he breaks it. And then he's gone. So they, they realised who it was and then he was gone. And then he's with his friends. He comes and stands with them in this locked room. There is life beyond this life. There is a reality that is even more than this reality, not less. We often think of some heaven as some sort of spiritual never-never land, don't we? As if somehow the life that God has for us is less than the life we have here. Actually, the Bible says the entire opposite. What it says says is, you think you know what life looks and feels like. You've only had a tiniest taste of the glory that is full life that God promises. 
What Jesus is resurrected into is not like Lazarus resuscitated back into the life we all live and having to die again. No, this resurrection is into the new life, the life of the world to come. And he brings it right and he stands right in the midst of their locked room. And what does he say to them? Peace be with you. Now, he wasn't shushing them, okay? This wasn't like peace. And he wasn't going, don't worry. That's how we would interpret that, you know, peace be with you as a sort of formal religious way of saying, don't worry. Actually, in the Bible, this word peace has its roots in a Hebrew word, shalom, or shalom. It's a powder keg of a word. It's a fantastic word. It's incredibly rich. It's a word that that fights far above its weight, because in that little word is a whole world of meaning. Because in the Bible, that word peace has to do with wholeness. It has to do with a mending of what is broken, a bringing together of what should never have been apart, a giving of life to that which is dying, a righting of what is wrong. When shalom comes, when God's peace comes, broken hearts are made whole. Broken minds are put back together again. Broken relationships get the possibility of healing. Fractured societies find a different way to live and forgive. Where God's shalom is, human life begins to resemble more what it was always meant to be and what will, it will one day be. So what do we do with the messiness of human life, the messiness of my life, of your life, of our shared lives? What do we do with the fact that between birth and death, I mean, I should, be, I should have loads of Shakespeare quotes at my, at, my, at my hand. I mean, if you know your Shakespeare, you'll know. Shakespeare, uh, of anybody, is brilliant at forensically unpacking the mess of human existence, isn't he? I mean, it, actually, even his great comedies are only funny because of the messiness of human life. And obviously, his tragedies are absolutely full of noise and, and, and fury and, and, and thunder and, and all the... the just the brokenness of human life. And the resurrection says to us, there is life beyond this life. There is a promise of and the beginnings of an experience of shalom, a wholeness that begins to put back together that which we have broken. And how do we know that? What do we do with that? Well, he promises them this gift. It says, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you receive the Holy Spirit. Two things that we need to do with this promise, this gift. One is we need to recognise that the resurrection achieved something that still needs to be fully implemented. That's two quite sort of businessy type words that don't maybe sit terribly comfortably with resurrection, but I think they work. We've achi- Jesus has achieved something in his life and death and resurrection that we don't fully see in our lives do we? We don't fully experience the life of the world to come here. We we still experience the decay of our bodies and the brokenness of relationships and even churches that aren't perfect. We experience the messiness of normal life. And we only get glimpses, tastes every now and again of this shalom that's to come. Because Jesus has achieved something that still needs to be worked out in human history. Oscar Kuhlman, one of the great um, theologians of the 20th century, Um, said that what Jesus achieved on the cross could be likened to being a little bit like the D-Day landings in the Second World War. That with the hindsight of history, you could see that the D-Day landings achieved victory. With hindsight, from that point on, victory was never in doubt. 
and village by village, town by town, section by section, as the Allied troops rolled across France, they brought liberation. They brought shalom, we'd say. They brought wholeness. They brought freedom. People came out on the streets and celebrated the taste of this victory. But it wasn't complete. It needed to be rolled out. It needed to be, to use a very sort of mechanical phrase, needed to be implemented. There were battles to be fought. So Jesus says to them, peace be with you. This is my gift. This is what I've achieved. Now I am sending you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. You are to go and implement, roll out, bring this gift that I've made possible. And then he says this very awkward thing. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And if you're anything like me, you winced when you heard those words. Because unless you're a megalomaniac, I don't see many sitting here, you're not sitting there going, great, I get to decide who gets forgiven. You think, it's not up to me to forgive. Only Jesus gets to forgive. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus is the one who has achieved for us in his life and death and resurrection forgiveness and new life. Shalom. And he puts into your hands, he puts into my hands, this incredible gift of the knowledge of a life to come, of the gift of forgiveness and new life. And he says, okay, here you are. Now who are you going to give it to? Who are you going to pass it out to? We can't do it on our own. We need help. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit. That's why he says at this point, receive the Holy Spirit. The job of the Holy Spirit, everywhere you look in Scripture, is to bring the life of the world to come right into the midst of our locked rooms, to do what Jesus did. The Holy Spirit is described as being like God's down payment his taste of what's come. Do you, if you, you, most of you are far too young to remember the Bisto adverts with the... Ah, Bisto? A few of you nodding, betraying your age. Okay, so I, I, certainly, I certainly remember it. Um, so there, there, there was this you know, cartoon character and they'd, you'd see the aroma. Sort of a draw, it's a sort of cartoon. You'd see the aroma and they'd go, ah, Bisto, and they'd follow the nose. And of course, in an aroma, what you're getting is you're getting actual molecules from the real thing, aren't you? That's how aroma works. You're getting some of the the molecules from that gravy, that Bisto gravy, I'm not here on commission, um, floats into the room, and as you smell it, you're drawn towards it, because you've had a taste, an aroma of the real thing. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit's job is to give us a taste of the life of the world to come. Not just to take it on trust, but as we trust, to experience it ourselves. So the Holy Spirit comes to bring us the gift of forgiveness, so we know we're forgiven. The Holy Spirit begins to give us a taste of what life is like to be in relationship with God. We don't see him fully yet, but in worship sometimes, as you're singing or in prayer, that moment where you just feel God's connection, God's closeness, that aroma of the life of the world come, that's the Holy Spirit at work. That point at which actually somebody does a great act of kindness towards you, or of love, self-serving, self-sacrifice to serve you. It's a little glimpse of the life of the world to come. Then actually, even more remarkable, the moment that God gives me or you the willingness to serve others, to give ourselves up for others. It's a taste of the life of the world to come. 
the Holy Spirit brings the life of the future right there into the present, right into the locked rooms of our lives and says, peace be with you. So as Jesus' friends, the disciples, first experienced a taste of the life of the world to come, they were then given the task of giving it to others. How do they do it? Well, it's there. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. How did they pass on this good news? Well, they just told him. You notice they didn't explain the resurrection, because I suspect they were still a little bit discombobulated about the whole thing. It was still a bit weird. You know, if Thomas had said to them, how did he appear with you in the locked room? They wouldn't have gone, well, he sits like this. Jesus was resurrected, so he's into the life of the world to come, and he's bringing that life, and it's a little bit different to our life. It's more than we know. They just went, we've seen him. There was no sort of theological wrangling or PhDs flying around. They simply said, we've seen the Lord. We can all do that. Sometimes it's as simple as saying, come to church with me. Sometimes it's, do you know, I never used to think there was anything to this life than than what you can see, touch, taste and feel, but I'm just beginning to believe that there's a God who loves me. Well, you know, I've started to pray. It's really weird. I didn't think I'd ever be the sort of person that prayed. We simply tell it as we see it. And then Jesus does the rest. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, they still hadn't quite plucked up courage. Have you noticed that? They're still in the locked room. Meeting Jesus the once doesn't do it all. It's a lifetime of his life at at work in us. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas. See, Thomas needed to meet Jesus for himself. We introduce others to him. But they have to meet him for themselves, just as we're meeting him. Know him for ourselves. In a moment, we're going to worship. Moments afterwards, we're going to share communion. I love the way in which communion connects together life and the life of the world to come. Because it connects together our experience of what we call the Lord's Supper, Jesus sharing bread and wine with his friends some 2,000 years ago. But it also points ahead, the Bible says, to a heavenly banquet. It's the lovely picture language of saying, you know, this life of the world to come isn't going to be floating around on, a hot, on, on fluffy clouds playing harps wearing white nighty. This is about food and drink and friends and party. This is a life that is more than the life we have now, not less. Communion connects together the two, the past and the future, and brings both right here, right now, into the present. So as John comes to lead us again in some songs of worship, As we prepare for communion, we prepare simply to put our empty hands and say to Jesus, into the otherwise locked room of my life, where I've come and where I'm going, would you come and bring the life of the world to come? And would you help me then to pass on that life to others?